pray together. Father, we know who we are according to your word and what you've spoken. And we are loved. And that's enough. So, Father, we celebrate that this morning as we gather here to sing of your praises and to open your word. God, no other... No matter what season we bring into this room, no matter what set of circumstances, Father, we will be content because we have Jesus and we have your love. So, Father, I pray that that love would once again stir our hearts and our minds and our souls to a greater devotion to you. Father, a stronger resolve to give ourselves wholeheartedly to you, Father. So we give you this time. We give you more than just time, Father. We give you more than just songs. We give our very lives you would use us according to your good, pleasing, and perfect will. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And I love that song. Uh, it sets such a, a powerful tone. I love that line, in every circumstance I will be content. Uh, just, just a beautiful reminder of what it means to rest upon the sufficiency of Jesus. I uh, love the way uh, that that sets the tone for us this morning, and I uh, just love being able to worship with you all and to celebrate those truths. I want to begin today by also offering a word of thanks to Brian Briscoe, who filled in in my absence last week, did a phenomenal job, as always, love listening to Brian preach, and, and he did such a, a great job of uh, leading us through the story of the prodigal son, and grateful for that. My family, we were on a, our last little vacation for the summer and uh, ready to, to kind of come back and return to the normalcy of school. But we were out in Tennessee in the Great Smoky Mountains, had a good time out there. Um, more on that here in just a little bit. But one of the things that I was thinking of in preparation for our message this morning is, do you ever find yourself in those situations where you, you are using an object or a product or a tool and you discover you've been using it incorrectly for like a great amount of time and you had no idea. In fact, you can get online a lot of times and actually search this, common products that you didn't know you were using incorrectly. I'll give you an example, like the, the saucepan with the hole in the handle. You guys ever noticed that? Apparently that little hole in the handle is so you can put your spoon on there in between stirring. I had no idea. Uh, another one that I saw not too long ago that really blew my mind was the foil box. I don't know how many of you guys are aware of this, but the little foil box has those little tabs Put those in, man, it will change your life. Because then every time you go and you pull the foil out, the roll of foil actually stays in the box. Anybody, everybody know that? Did anybody not know that? Anyway, there, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Those are some free suggestions for you today. Apparently, there's another one with Pez dispensers that Matt was telling us about this morning. You can ask him afterwards as well, some correct ways to in, insert the Pez dispenser. But the point is, is that we have these moments where we have this everyday use product or object or tool and we can make it work, right? We can have a way of making sure we can utilize it, but then every once in a while when we actually stop and see how it's designed and the intent behind that design, we can use it more effectively, right? So sometimes when we fail to recognize the design of certain things, we have this limitation to where it can be used, but not to its fullest extent. Now, the other thing that can happen, that's, that's kind of a best case scenario. The other thing that can happen is that when you use an object or a product or a tool incorrectly, it can actually be somewhat harmful. In fact, when we were on our vacation, uh, one of the souvenirs that my children purchased was a pocket knife. And not, not like one of those little pocket knives with the larger one, you know, that really has all the bells and whistles on it. And uh, as we had just purchased this pocket knife, we were driving back and Annabelle starts like pulling every blade and every tool out of the pocket knife, like as we're driving on the highway. I'm like, that's not 
where we use pocket knives. And, and so I told her to kind of close it all up, and I said, I need to show you the proper way to use this, because it reminded me of my childhood. I was terrible at using knives, and I at one point had a pocket knife just like the one that they had purchased, one of those larger ones. And I remember probably around the same age, nine or 10, going into my room, grabbing that pocket knife and starting to cut something, and I wasn't paying attention, and I actually started to cut using the dull side of the blade. And those pocket knives don't have a lock on them. And so as soon as I started to push down, that blade just collapsed on my finger and sliced my finger, and I had immediate pain and had to go and get stitches and still have the scar today. So when I sit Annabelle down, I'm telling her all the right ways to use it, and I'm telling her the wrong way to use it. I'm like, hey, and this right here is your warning sign, right? This little scar right here, it hurts when you use things incorrectly. And so I, I use that as a little bit of a kind of introductory illustration for this lesson, right? When we use things incorrectly at best, we miss out on what they might be intended to be used. We might miss out on the fullness of what they were designed to do. At worst, when we use things incorrectly, it becomes actually harmful and destructive. So take that lesson and project it beyond products and tools and objects and put it upon our lives, right? When you think about the purpose of your life, the meaning of life, what you were designed to do, who you were designed to be. When we miss out on that, at best, we can live a life that sure works, has good moments, but it never reaches the fullness of what it was intended. At worst, we choose a life that becomes destructive and harmful and leaves scars. And so how do we guard against that. See, what those illustrations have in common was that the reason I never really understood the foil or the reason I picked up the knife incorrectly is because I just wasn't paying attention, right? It was this moment of a lack of awareness, this inability to realize or to truly consider how things were designed. There was this blind spot, this, this failure to recognize how something was actually designed. And that's really what I want us to talk through tonight or this morning is how do we work through those moments where we have the failure to acknowledge or to recognize or to see these blind spots that often distract us from living the life that we were designed to live, the life that we were created for, the life that was purposed for us by our creator. How do we remove those blind spots so that we can live the fullness according to his plan? That's going to be our focus for this morning. So grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. This is our last church, as Kevin in April just reminded our children. Here we are at Church of Laodicea. Uh, the seventh and final church in this series will dedicate this week and next to this conversation. And then on Promotion Sunday, we'll start our new series where we're going to walk through parables. And both of these series, both the parables and this one, and even what we've done so far this far this year, has been really <clears throat> to drive us back to the theme that we started the year off on, which is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Right? When we fix our eyes on the names of Jesus and the, the words of Jesus to the churches and then the parables of Jesus, the better we are able to focus in on him and continue to run this race that he's marked out for us. And so that's what these series have been intended to focus in on. And I look forward to discussing the power of story and how Jesus uses story to teach us these important truths. Uh, Brian did a good job of introducing that with the prodigal son. Uh, and so we look forward to that series starting here in the next couple of weeks. But, but for now, we need to finish off this church in Laodicea. Here's how we're going to do it today. Uh, rather than just kind of give you an overview of Laodicea like I've done with these previous churches, we're going to work through this somewhat incrementally. We're going to read the section of Scripture today kind of in three distinct sections. And as we walk through that, I will give you a little bit more context along the way about things specific to this particular church. But before we, we read that first section, I will say that Laodicea is similar 
to so many of the other churches. It's a church of, of influence. It's on the, the Roman road there, and as a result was a, a center of trade and commerce and had a certain affluence attached to its identity. Uh, but one of the things that you will often see, also see, is that it's, it has other appearances in the New Testament beyond just the book of Revelation. And this to me is at least worth mentioning. You don't have to turn there, but we see it most frequently mentioned in the book Colossians, or the letter to the church in Colossae. In chapter 2, verse 1 in Colossians, we see Paul writing, saying, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. This gives us an insight that the church at Laodicea and at Colossae have some form of a connection, and, and that's elaborated on even a little bit further in chapter 4 of Colossians in verse 13. Paul is talking about his partner in the gospel, Epaphras, and he says, I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and those at Laodicea and Heropolis, another nearby, nearby town. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor in Demison, greetings, give my greetings to brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And so we see this, this kind of tri, trifecta of cities of Colossae and Laodicea and Heropolis that are all right there together. And we'll elaborate upon that a little bit further, but we can see that this is an important Christian community. And so I just kind of want to work through Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, and reading through these in, in three <clears throat> distinct sections. And so follow along with me, starting in verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is following the exact same formula that we've seen in the other letters, right? We have an acknowledgement of who's receiving the letter and then a description of Jesus. I love this description. He's the Amen, the faithful and true witness, he is the ruler of God's creation, once again affirming the superiority, the sufficiency, the sovereignty of Jesus. Now, here's, here's how the letter begins, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. All right, let's stop there for a moment. Uh, this is a, a well-known piece of scripture and one of the first things that I would call your attention to when we read through this is, again, kind of what we saw in the children's message a second ago, which is most of these other letters, when you get to this section with this divine knowledge, I know your deeds, I know your afflictions, it tends to lead to some word of affirmation, right? But you've held tightly to my name. You have not followed the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There, there's something that is affirming and encouraging, but not so for the church in Laodicea, right? There's, there's no encouragement. There's no affirmation. The divine knowledge goes directly into a word of warning, a word of verdict, and, and concern about the church, which tells us a lot about the state that the church of Laodicea is in, right? It, it is a church that has lost its way. And so the way that this is described is with this <clears throat> familiar reference to neither being hot or cold, but being lukewarm. And when you read through these first few verses, there, there seems to be an obvious interpretation that if you're like me, when I first heard this passage read, I kind of walked away with a, what seemed to be a common conclusion, that essentially what this passage is seeming to teach is that we need to guard against being in the middle, that, that Jesus either wants you all in or all out, right? But pick one. Don't, don't gravitate to this nominal kind of halfway Christianity, like you're either all in or just you're all out. And, and that's how I tended to understand this particular passage. There's a, a little concern with that because it doesn't take into account some pretty important components when you begin to try to figure out how to interpret this particular passage. Let me give you 
uh, a few things where that interpretation falls short. The first is that it kind of projects upon uh, ancient Christianity uh, terminology that we're accustomed to, right? We associate the terms hot and cold to spiritual vitality, but that doesn't necessarily mean the church of thousands of years ago did. And so it kind of projects this Western interpretation, this Western mindset that 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 terminology of temperature can be assigned to your spiritual vitality. And that's, that's a dangerous thing to do, to bring your own Western mindset into interpreting the scriptures. So you kind of have to separate that out. The other reason that it becomes problematic is because it implies that Jesus would actually prefer for some people to just be lost, right? For Jesus to say, I'd rather you be all in or all out, doesn't seem to really be consistent with Christ, right? That there would ever be a scenario where he would actually prefer people to be lost and rebellious against him doesn't seem to resonate with the rest of what we know about Christ. But the real problem with that interpretation is that it has a limited understanding of the historical context of Laodicea. And, and this is where the scripture comes to life as it, it really pertains to this particular church. What you find when you study the, the geographical setting of Laodicea is that it had a six mile long aqueduct that provided its water sources. And that water source tended to either come from Heropolis or Colossae. And that would either come from the hot springs of Heropolis or the cold springs of Colossae. And by the time it made its long journey, that six-mile-long journey, the water arrived in Laodicea neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And so despite all of its wealth, despite all of its prestige, Laodicea had a terrible water supply. And when you tasted the water in Laodicea, it, it was tepid, it was hard. You wanted to literally kind of spit it out of your mouth. And so what's really being conveyed here is something a little bit different than just your spiritual fervency, right? Because part of what was known in this particular time is that the hot springs were known for medicinal purposes. They had a particular use and a particular effectiveness. The cold springs were known for their purity. Lukewarm water was ineffective. It was useless. And so it's not so much about fervor, but about being used effectively for the gospel. It's being used effectively according to how God created and designed you to be a follower of Jesus, to be able to live a life filled with meaning and purpose according to how you were created. And they were missing it. They were ineffective in this church. They were missing God's design and purpose for their lives. And so they were lukewarm. And so that's kind of the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning. Are you living a life that you would consider to be effective according to God's design and plan? How he created you, who he created you to be? Or would you say your life has missed that mark? Has it missed that calling? Is it lukewarm? Maybe the greater question is, would you even know? Would you even be able to recognize the lukewarmness or the ineffectiveness that exists in your life? Because that really is probably the greater concern facing the church and Laodicea. Let's, let's continue and read to this next section, <clears throat> picking back up in verse 17. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. All right, let's stop there for a second. So, so here's what really stood out to me as this passage continued, was that the church in Laodicea said one thing, but it was very disconnected from reality. 
You say you're rich and that you don't need a thing. Right now, that could have been a literal wealth that was a very affluent area, an affluent city, which we'll talk about here in a second, but it could have been figurative. Could have been just a certain level of pride that had worked itself into the church, but whether it was literal or figurative, there's no escaping the fact that this church had no real um, awareness of what was reality. They said one thing, and reality was something completely different. You say this, but you don't even realize that this is your real condition, right? So, so not only were they lukewarm and ineffective, they didn't even realize it. Not only were they not being used according to God's plan and his design for their lives, they had no clue. And so what about us? Right? Are we able to discern those moments where we too have these blind spots that limit our ability to see when we are no longer living the effective life that God has called us to live? What creates those blind spots, those inabilities, that, that lack of awareness to truly discern whether or not we are living the life that God intended? Really, it comes down to identity. Right? It comes down to understanding what you were designed for, who you were designed to be. And a lot of times we answer that question using the wrong metrics, using the wrong guides. We shape our identity with things that can lead us astray. Henry Nouwen gives a pretty good, succinct description of five lies related to identity. Right? Five different lies that we tell ourselves that alter our understanding of the purpose of life, the meaning of life, and what we often consign ourselves to. Let me give you a few of them, right? A lot of times we shape our identity by I am, by what I have, right? We, we give in to this idea that it's what I acquire, it's what I gain, it's the wealth I possess, it's the home that I've purchased, it's the neighborhood that I can live in, it's the success that I've accumulated financially, all these different things that I am based on what I have. And maybe we don't always say that explicitly, but there's no doubt that we often Curate lives that reveal that sort of focus and that sort of priority. And it's a deception, right? It leads you in a direction where you live a life outside of God's design. Another one is not just I am what I have, but I am what I do, right? And we define ourselves based on tasks, our, our roles as students or as career people or as parents or whatever tasks that often are before us, and we begin to define ourselves based on our accomplishments, based on our successes, and we define ourselves accordingly. I am this person. I am this uh, person that is able to achieve these particular sets of responsibilities. I especially think of this when I watch the Olympics, right, because you see people that have just poured their whole life, their whole identity into a task. And I am a swimmer. I am a gymnast. But then what happens when you can't swim anymore, or you have to retire, or you have to step away, or something else pulls you away from the things that you do. Is that truly what defines you? Again, it's another lie that shapes our identity and leads us in a path where we live a life outside of God's design. Maybe another lie that Henry Nouwen puts in front of us is, I am what people say that I am. Right? So we let other voices determine our identity. We let other voices shape our understanding of who we are. We hear voices from culture saying that we're, we're so great, we're so important, we're so influential, or we're not important, we're, we're forgotten, we're neglected, we're outcast, and we're constantly trying to shape our identity based on what other people say. A fourth and fifth one that I thought were also really important lies that I thought were really well said was that sometimes you bind to the lie that I am nothing more than my worst moment. I think that one can trap a lot of people. Right? We make these mistakes, we have these failures, we have these faults, 
And we begin to believe that those are the things that truly shape who we are, and we live a life that is filled with guilt and with shame. And we begin to wrestle with the idea that God even would have any plan for us at all. The other side of that coin, the fifth lie, is that I am nothing less than my best moment. That's where pride comes in. All we can see are the good things, the accomplishments, the values that are are, uh, constantly uh, asserted from culture, and we begin to just anchor ourselves there, unable to really see the mistakes, the, the shortcomings, and the things that we actually have to acknowledge to get better. So many things that can lead us astray and make us miss the life that God has designed us to live. And at best, when we buy into those lies and we give into those blind spots, we live a life that, sure, we can make do, but we never find the fullness that God intended. But at worst, when we go down those paths, it becomes destructive, and it creates harm and scars. So we have these blind spots that can limit our ability, just like the church in Laodicea. We think we're one thing when we fail to recognize we're something completely different. So how do we, how do we break out of that? Like, how do we discern and unearth those blind spots and begin to live according to the life that God designed for us. Well, a couple of things that I would say we can infer just from this passage, right? Number one, it's the words of Jesus, right? That's truly what begins to reveal who we were designed to be, what we were designed to do, who God created us to be according to his plan. We have to know the words of Jesus. We have to commit to it, study it, submit to it, allow it to govern everything about who we are. It's the words of Christ. That's what's awakening this church, Right? Jesus is saying, you, you think it's this, but it's really this. So we have to have the words of Christ pour into our hearts on a regular basis, both individually as well as collectively. And that leads me to kind of a second point, is that a lot of times in order for us to really identify these blind spots in our lives or we're being led astray is through community. Right? We, need the, we need the words of Christ being offered to us through the people of Christ, the body of Christ. I had a conversation recently with somebody that, that brought this great illustration. A lot of times it's like hanging a picture on a wall. When you're the one standing at that wall hanging that picture, you can't tell if it's straight or if it's crooked. And so what do you need? You need somebody else standing further back looking in and saying, no, raise this side, lower this side. And too many times we go through life and we're just standing at the wall. and We can't tell. We can't see which direction we're going. We need community around us to say, no, go right, go left. No, go right down the middle. It takes the words of Christ being offered to us through the body of Christ. And when those words are offered, we have to be courageous enough to be receptive. We have to be courageous enough to offer them to brothers and sisters as well, right? We have to be willing to embrace honesty. I mean, what Jesus just said to this church is hard. That's not an easy, uplifting conversation. There was no affirmation. There was only, hey, I've I've got some concerns, But we've got to be courageous enough to engage in those conversations and receive those conversations because it's only there that we can truly correct our course. So consider the correction that Jesus just offered, right? It's it's really interesting because when he gives this diagnosis, he also gives a prescription, right? The diagnosis is you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. It is so destitute for you and you don't even realize it. But let me tell you how you correct it. You need to buy gold from me. You need to find white clothes from me. You need to put salve on your eyes from me. Now that would have spoken directly to the Laodicean context. A couple of things about Laodicea, again, is that it was known for its wealth, very affluent to the point that even Cicero had bank drafts from Laodicea, right? Even the emperor was coming through and getting money from Laodicea from time to time. 
In addition to that, the industry that it was really well known for was wool. And it was famous for this really shiny black, luxurious wool that would be often utilized in clothing and in garments. It also had a school of medicine in Laodicea that was found, uh, famous for producing various ointments that could be used, especially ointments that you could put on your eyes to cure your defects. So all these different things that were so relevant to the identity of Laodicea, right, cultural wealth, uh, this luxurious, these luxurious garments, even these ointments for eyes, Jesus is calling all those things out, and he says, you cannot define your worth, you cannot define your identity by the things of the world, you only find those things from me. Your wealth doesn't come from the wealth of your city, it comes from gold from me. Your luxury and your benefit does not come from this luxurious wool that you clothe yourself, you clothe yourself in the purity and the white garments from me. The true ointment that you need for your eyes is not some earthly ointment that cures those defects as you know them, but the spiritual blindness that only comes from me. All in all of it, Jesus is saying you only truly find your true identity, not in the things of the world, but through me. It's an incredible diagnosis and prescription that Jesus offers them. And so it, it teaches us that though these conversations are hard, it's only when we receive those hard conversations that we find the remedy that our souls really long for, which teaches us a little bit about the value of such hard conversations. Let's read this last section picking back up in verse 19. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. For here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I love this last section. So essentially what we have is Jesus is now owning the fact that this whole letter is a letter of rebuke and discipline. Right? It's not really a word of encouragement. The word rebuke means to expose one's fault. That's not something you and I tend to embrace inherently. Right? A lot of times we avoid conversations related to rebuke. It's why we won't come to church. It's why we won't be in community, right? Because we, we want to keep those faults hidden. We don't want to know about those things. But Jesus essentially says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to encounter rebuke. Your faults are going to be exposed. Discipline is paired right with it. But how do you hear that word discipline? A lot of times we hear it with this harsh connotation, and again, we're fearful, we want to avoid it, but this is essentially the word that is the same word used for parenting, right? To teach, to guide, to correct. So in the same way that a parent disciplines a child, so God disciplines and rebukes us. And so what do we see in this passage that's so critical about the rebuke and the discipline that comes from Jesus? Why does he give it to us? To those whom I love. What a beautiful reminder that rebuke and discipline is not anchored in hostility, it's not anchored in vengeance, it's not anchored in judgment, it's anchored in love. And so if we're going to follow this example, we need to also ask ourselves, when I, when I find myself in those hard conversations as the body of Christ, and I'm trying to offer the words of Christ, am I offering these words out of love? Am I offering them out of selfish motives? Am I going to bring somebody down or am I going to lift them up according to the love that we have in Christ? And Jesus sets this beautiful example that rebuke and discipline are anchored in love, right? And when that happens, what we discover is that the words of Christ offered through the body of Christ transform us by the love of Christ. And that's the way that we rediscover 
what we've been designed and called to do. And that's, that's really, to me, where this, this last few verses gains its most significant meaning and, and the thing that really just warms me up to it is that hopefully in the back of your mind as we're having this conversation, you're asking yourself the question, okay, but what are we designed to do? Who did he create us to be? How do I know? How do I get the answer to that question so that I can make sure I don't veer off this path and get distracted? And that to me is what is subtly referenced there at the end when it says, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever invites me in, I come in and eat with them and them with me. What we see is that Jesus has not designed us. God has not created us and designed us for a task or a career or a role or responsibility. He's created you for relationship. And that's it. That's the fullness of who you were created to be, to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. He stands at the door and knock and wants to come into your life, both individually and as a church. And when we embrace that, everything changes. He's created us for relationship. And so the question is, have you invited him in? Have you given yourself fully to that relationship? I love the urging here. What does it say to be earnest and repent? And we know repentance means to go another direction, right? That if I'm going this way, I need to start going this way. Earnestness means wholeheartedly. And I love that picture. I love what that implies. In fact, I would be willing to suggest that if there's anything that probably contributes to the blind spots in our lives, in our context today, it's because we don't give our whole hearts to Jesus. We'll give part of it. We'll give Sunday morning, maybe a couple hours here and there throughout the week. Right? We'll, we'll give him the times where we have really desperate moments, but will we really give him our careers? Will we give him our families? Will we give him our neighborhoods, our friendships? Will we give him everything? What happens when you give yourself earnestly to the gospel, when you give your whole heart to the relationship that is Jesus Christ? What takes place when you give everything you are to the very thing that you were created to be? That's where everything changes. And so I was trying to think through a way to try to bring like some color and context to what I think that can look like, right? And that, a story that would somehow bring that to life so we could try to picture some of the truths that we're seeing in this text. And as I came across uh, one particular story, it led to another story and another story and another story. And I, I just, as a side note, I was really in awe once again of just this this web that God can create from time to time, the way he can weave these things together and these stories can overlap and we don't even realize what he's doing until you stop and really reflect upon it. But I, I wanna share this story, um, or kind of a combination of a couple stories because to me it, it really captures the essence of what we're reading. Essentially, what takes place when we find these blind spots in our life that have us leading a life that is less than what God created us to live, a life that is outside of relationship with him. And when we have those blind spots addressed because the words of Christ find us through the body of Christ and then we are transformed by the love of Christ. And what happens when we earnestly give ourselves to that relationship? So I want to try to share a story or two that I think brings that to light. <clears throat> I'm going to start with C.S. Lewis um, and Billy Graham. Two good places to start. I think those two men could arguably be said of having some of the most significant impact on recent Christian history. Uh, 
their, their impact on the world of Christianity is well documented and well known. But if you go back and you look at the origins of their conversions, there's some really interesting nuances there. Again, I don't have time to go into all those details. There's a different story I want to utilize, but their, their stories serve as a different backdrop. So, so C.S. Lewis was 33 years old and had committed himself to staunch atheism throughout most of his life. And so in the fall of 1931, he goes on a walk on Oxford's campus with a couple of friends, J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. And they talk about a wide variety of things, talk about mythology and poetry and metaphor and Christianity. And so C.S. Lewis had had his whole life drifting one way, right, going a certain direction with this blind spot, but it took the words of Christ finding him through the body of Christ for him to discover what he was actually created for was relationship. And so just eight or nine days later after that conversation, he gave himself fully in earnestness to the relationship with Christ. And everything emerged after that. Books upon books, one of the greatest thinkers that we've seen. Now what's interesting is that just a couple years after this conversion, in 1934 in Charlotte, North Carolina, there was a revivalist preacher by the name of Mordecai Ham that was walking through and serving in different areas, and a 16-year-old boy was there and had, like most 16-year-old boys, no interest in going to hear this revivalist preacher. But Albert McCain, a friend of this boy's father, reached out to him, persuaded him to go. Sure enough, that young boy went and heard Mordecai Ham preach, and Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus. Pretty significant influence that happens, as we all know, following that moment. Now, what's interesting is about two years after um, uh, Billy Graham's conversion, around five years after C.S. Lewis's conversion, there was a 12-year-old boy named Athanasius Leonidas Philippides <laughs> who moved to Boston at the age of 12. His name obviously indicates that he was an immigrant, immigrant originally from Turkey, then to Greece, then to Canada before arriving in the U.S. at the age of 12. He arrives with just his mother and his sister, for his father died when he was a very young boy. And so here he is as an immigrant, and rightfully, after arriving here in the U.S., decides to kind of change his name to something a little bit more contextual and starts going by the name of Tom Phillips. So Tom Phillips is a smart, bright young man, and he uh, is very uh, intellectual, ends up with a master's degree in electrical engineering from Virginia Tech, and in 1948, he's hired by Raytheon and has a long and successful career with Raytheon. So successful, in fact, that as he climbs the corporate ladder, it's 1964 that he's made president of Raytheon and CEO of Raytheon in 1968. So there he is, the fullness of the American dream, an immigrant, fatherless, who comes in, works hard, studies hard, and achieves tremendous success Tremendous influence at the height of his career in his mid-40s, and he feels completely empty. Blind spot he could no longer ignore. And so what does he do? He ends up hearing that young boy from North Carolina preach in one of his own crusades, and at the words of Billy Graham, gives his life to Jesus. Now, as Tom Phillips followed this arc around a similar pathway, there was another boy that was born around the time that C.S. Lewis gave his life to Christ, also born in Boston, Massachusetts, 
His name was Charles Wendell Colson. Now, if you know anything about Chuck Colson, as he gave his life to politics, he was pretty um, immoral and corrupt. Started out in the U.S. Marine Corps, then gave himself to a law degree, started his own law firm in 1961, ended up serving on the Key Issues Committee for President Nixon in 1968, and then served as one of his special counsels in 1969. And he was known to be one of the most vilified people in Washington because of his lack of ethics, because of his immorality and his corrupt nature. He said famously in a memo that he wrote in 1972, I would walk over my own grandmother for Richard Nixon. When he talked about his moral compass for the first 41 years of his life, he said, I had none. As for religion, I think it's fine as long as people have as little of it as possible. That's the sort of man that he was. And there it was. That lifestyle, that way of thinking had led him to one of the most powerful offices in all of the land. Again, financial success, career success, and then Watergate. One of the greatest scandals in our nation's history. And so he has to leave Washington in a cloud of shame, having lost everything. So shortly thereafter, he figures he has to rebuild his career, his, his career as a lawyer. And so he reaches out to a friend, the CEO of Raytheon, Tom Phillips. Calls him up, says, can we visit? So he goes over to Tom's house. Tom invites him over. They sit on Tom's front porch. And Colson went, really just trying to see if he can gain any of the legal business from Raytheon. So he's trying to talk business, but Tom wanted to talk about something else. And so he asked Chuck, Chuck, how are you doing? Chuck opened up a little bit after all that he had been through, and then Tom began to explain to him how he too had been a successful businessman who thought he had it all, but realized he really had nothing because he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Chuck listened for a little bit, not much of it resonating, until all of a sudden Tom reached up and he grabbed a book written by C.S. Lewis. And he read an excerpt from Mere Christianity on the problem of pride. And as Chuck Colson listened to Tom Phillips share those words, something began to burn and sear within his heart. He wrapped up the conversation and left. And as he would recount in his own book a few years later, this is how that conversation impacted him. Chuck Colson wrote, Outside in the darkness, the iron grip I'd kept on my emotions began to relax. Tears welled up in my eyes as I groped in the darkness for the right key to start my car. Angrily, I brushed the tears away and started the engine. What kind of weakness is this? I said to nobody. And as I drove out of Tom's driveway, the tears were flowing uncontrollably. I pulled to the side off the road, not more than 100 yards from the entrance to Tom's driveway. And with my face cupped in my hands, I forgot about machismo, about pretenses, about fears of being weak. And as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. And then I prayed my first real prayer. God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but I'm going to continue to give myself to you. And while I didn't know what else to pray, I just said these words over and over again, take me, take me, take me. And there we had the words of Christ being offered by the body of Christ to see a life transformed by the love of Christ. And what happened next with Chuck Colson was really remarkable, right? Things actually didn't get better. Shortly thereafter, he was indicted for his role in Watergate. And despite his own lawyer's advice, he pleaded guilty. And then he was sentenced to a, a prison term of one to three years. And while he was in prison, he was disbarred from practicing law 
His son was arrested, and he lost his father. So coming to Jesus didn't just make things magically easier, did it? And yet something had changed because he had discovered who he was actually designed to be, who he was created to be, and he poured into the scriptures feverishly and furiously, furiously consuming them. And as, as he was consuming them in prison, he started thinking, what about these fellow prisoners? What if we just, just developed a discipleship program for those that were in prison? And so after he got out of prison, he started what was known as Prison Fellowship that later became known as International Prison Fellowship and now exists in more than 120 countries where prisoners all over the world are discipled in the love and the scriptures of Jesus Christ. And the offshoots from this ministry, like the Angel Tree, where every year more than 300,000 children who have family members incarcerated receive gifts at Christmas time. He started faith-based prison systems and correctional facilities. Ironically, uh, under George Bush's term, uh, Chuck Colson actually ended up being another confidant in the White House, but this time with a totally different posture, a totally different mindset as he counseled uh, effective ways for rehabilitation, reemployment for those that were imprisoned, advocating for ending the war in Sudan, stopping AIDS, and stopping sex trafficking. <laughs> what happens when you give yourself earnestly to the relationship of Jesus? So you can stop and you can read the highlights of C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham and Chuck Colson and marvel at the impact that they've had. And yet as I was reading through it, I couldn't help but think, but does any of that happen without Hugo Dyson, Albert McCain, and Tom Phillips? Those moments where those blind spots are removed because the words of Christ were offered through the body of Christ so that a life could be transformed by the love of Christ. What happens when we earnestly give ourselves to this relationship? See, what really stuck out to me, and this is the last part of the story that I'll offer, was not just the, the list of things that you could point to with those lives. Yes, books were written, crusades were preached, and ministries were launched. But there was something more intimate and even more meaningful that often escapes our attention. After her father passed away, Emily Coulson, reached out to Tom Phillips, the man who had changed her father's life. Tom was older in age, he was about 94, and Emily wanted one last chance to go up and see him and tell this man thank you for the impact that he had had on her father's life. She wrote a little blog about their exchange, and this to me was just so powerful and meaningful. I wanna share it with you this morning. She talks about their last visit. She says, Tom was just as gracious and gentle as I had remembered, welcoming me welcoming me into his home. We sat around his kitchen table, enjoying food and conversation, and then I pulled out a manila envelope. Tom, I brought you a gift, I said as I fought back tears. This is nothing and this is everything. I could barely speak past the lump in my throat. Tom, I want to thank you. You were obedient to Christ and shared your faith with my dad. And because of that, thousands of lives were changed. But Tom, this is personal. My life was changed too. When my dad gave his life to Christ, it gave me my dad back, maybe for the first time. And then, Tom, I gave my life to Christ. And then my son gave his life to Christ. I paused and I opened the manila envelope to hand him a photograph of my father baptizing my son, Max. Across the top of the photograph, I had written, thank you, Tom. And along the bottom, my son in his beautiful looping handwriting had written, love, Max. We said our goodbyes and I headed for the car and something struck me as I drove off, the remarkable peace about Tom 
Here he was, 94, obviously in frail health. His beloved wife, Gert, had passed a year before, and yet he exuded peace. And it was the same peace that drew my dad to Tom. It was the peace of Christ. When we discover who we're really designed to be, we remove those blind spots and the words of Christ offered through the body of Christ transform us by the love of Christ. And we give ourselves earnestly to that relationship. It's not just that books are written and crusades are preached and ministries are launched, but families are changed. Little boys and girls get their dads back. And it carries on from one generation to the next. And so where are you? Maybe God is asking you to be that Hugo Dyson, that Albert McCain, or that Tom Phillips in somebody else's life. You know that there's somebody that you love, somebody that you hold dear that needs to once again be reminded of who they were really created to be. And you need to offer those words in love and compassion. Or maybe you're here today and you're facing your own blind spot, saying you're this thing when in reality it's something completely different. You've missed the life that God has intended you to live, and you haven't earnestly given yourself to that relationship. Regardless of where you are, be assured of this, church. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. And he longs to come in each and every day. So may we say no to the things of this world that easily distract us and say yes to him, feast with him, and dwell with him, and give ourselves earnestly to him each and every moment of our lives. And then we will discover the peace and the fullness that this life has to offer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you've created us for more than tasks, more than responsibilities, but for relationship. God, we confess that there are so many things in this world and in our lives that can lead us astray, God, things that can lure us into a life that is less than what you've designed. Father, that in our best moments of being led astray, we miss out on the fullness that you've created, and in our worst, we find ourselves down a path that is destructive hurtful to ourselves and to others. So call us back. Help us to hear your words, Father, in the midst of being your church, that we can once again be transformed by the love that you have for us, opening our hearts and our minds to understand that you've created us for that relationship. Let us give ourselves wholeheartedly to Christ. If there's anything, Father, that prevents us from such a commitment this morning, we surrender it to you. Give us courage to hear and courage to speak so that once again we can live boldly for you. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name.